For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That was out of 2 Corinthians and out of Ephesians. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if these verses are true for all Christians, and I believe they are, then we are told that our primary struggle is not with the external material world. That the primary things we're to be concerned with are not political party, uh, race, our bodies. These are not the core issue, but rather there is something underneath the surface that is utilized, our passage says here, by we might call them subversive forces to influence our thinking. So we choose whether we're going to take that script or another one. Notice we do battle with our thoughts. Now, let me cut to the chase because this is only an introduction. The devil, the world system, and by, by that I mean like a, a worldview, philosophical thought, uh, the script, and then our flesh, our passions, are kind of a trifecta that are used to present to us a way of doing life much different than a biblical worldview. These are deceptive ways of operating. The goal, by the way, we're told in 1 Peter 5.8, is that Satan roams about seeking whom he may what? ruin us. So it never leads to flourishing to take this script from the world, the flesh, and the devil. It always is going to lead to ruin. You know, it's not a new thing. It's, it's something that has gone on for ages. And it happens in, again, subversive ways. Take, for instance, the way we think about marriage. I'm just not talking about the secular crowd. I'm talking about Christians as well. That we can either choose a biblical mindset on marriage. I'm just using this as a way to illustrate. To showcase grace, to showcase the glory of God, to show how God works with his people. That's a large picture of what marriage should be. Or... The script of the world is we see marriage as a way to meet my personal needs of security, of identity, of helping me be happy. And I'll never forget when it finally dawned on me after about a decade or so of marriage that Janet was not there just to make me happy. Now, I'm telling you, you know, I could have been I was just immature. Well, I certainly was. But there's a lot of other things going on. But I believed a wrong script. That that was not, that could be a 
secondary result of marriage that I can be happy in it, but she was not that vehicle. I was making an idol of her instead of putting Christ there. So once it fails, then what do you do? Well, I'll just find somebody else in, right? What, what else can the world have to offer us? My point is that the things that we believe about one another, about our relationships, about God, about sexuality, about the church, about the personhood of human beings, this is a script that is presented to us that's either biblical or false. See this in the garden. What was happening to Adam and Eve in the garden? Hey, listen, Adam and Eve, this is not the way God said. Here, let me tell you how this is really going to work. And a new script was offered them instead of the one that God had enunciated. It's no wonder that a major part of our growth as believers is in Romans where it says, don't be conformed to the world, but be renewed by what? Our minds. Our minds being transformed. So I say all that as a way of introduction, that Israel, because we're in the book of Hosea, Israel thought wrongly about God. They had the wrong script. They had taken the information that the culture fed them, and they believed that instead of Jehovah God. They fell into worshiping idols and believed the physical presence of certain kings or political systems would be their tickets. Our short series here in Hosea 13 is when your idols turn to rivals. Israel witnessed God answering their request for a king, starting with Saul, and 23 kings later, ending with Hoshea. Now, you might remember that Saul was chosen. Why? For his godliness? No. The external reason of what? He was Hollywood, tall and good-looking, right? Man always looks at the outside. And Israel was enmeshed with that, and they were also enmeshed with idols. And they were not just the stone kind. They were the stone kind, but they were others, political leaders, political system, instead of God. Israel swallowed the mindset around them. There's an older movie called Out of Africa with Meryl Streep and Robert Redford. Those under 25 have no clue who they are. Um, But they had a line in it that said this, that when God judges people, he answers their prayers. Now, a Christian might understand that to mean that people do not always pray for what aligns with God's wisdom but their personal passions. And that's exactly what went on with Israel. They wanted the physical presence of not a godly king, but a person that they could look up to with external means and ways. And Israel's passion was to do life without Jehovah God. Now here's the thing. Remember, Israel's supposed to be God's people. So if I'm interpreting this correctly... God's people can have idols. 
God's people, that means us, can have passions, the world, the devil, give us a script that is not biblical and that we believe it and it's to our own demise. Let's talk about how this is done, okay? But let's first read the passage. Let's all stand. Hosea 13. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come from him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasure of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she's rebelled against her God. It shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. This is the very kind of passage that a group of Christians want to completely discount or rip from the Bible because they simply cannot connect the dots on how God could allow this. That's one way to go. Or we can believe that this is the word of God and there's a way to understand this and that is for our instruction. So Lord, we don't claim to have it all together. We don't claim to have perfect knowledge. But we want understanding of this passage. We want to apply it correctly. So we pray for your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds. And more than that, or just as much as that, we want to put it into practice so that we read the right script, so that we operate with a biblical worldview. We need your help. So we ask you to do a work in us. I thank you for these, my brothers and sisters. What a delight that they are. But I know they struggle just like I do. And they need your word. They need your instruction. And they need to know how to do battle with these forces that seek to deceive them. So may we recognize some of the deceit. May we repent when we swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And may we once again commit ourselves to operating under the lordship of Jesus with a biblical worldview. I ask this in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The people put their trust in a human ruler instead of Yahweh as their sovereign, divine ruler over the people. The latest king was Hoshea, 
who had been removed from the throne. And people did not turn to Yahweh for help, but this human king. Their situation was not so much in looking to a king. I mean, we can have a degree of aspirations with a leader, but their ultimate hope was in that. They wanted a type of king that would not look to the Lord, that would not challenge them about um, understanding godly wisdom, but they wanted a king that would go along with their desires as an idol-worshiping culture. They desired a king that would not trust God, that would not turn to God, but who would fight battles without looking to him. I've said it before, the United States is not a theocracy, meaning that um, we're not looking at God making all the civil laws um, and we're not demanding that all the leaders be Christian, okay? Um, And God is not the one over civil life as well as religious life. Israel was that, but America is a different bird. Now, we have to remember that when we make application of this, and I don't want to draw just absolutely parallel uh, applications. But, having said that, when God's people, including Americans, look to a man or woman to save them from their troubles and place their hopes in that person instead of God, how different are Christians today than Israel from ages ago. I think that's a valid application. Now, in Israel's case, they rejected depending on God. They did not like the God, uh, the, the leaders that God wanted for them. And they petitioned that a king be like what it says in 1 Samuel 8, 5, like other nations. Okay? So again, hope clearly in a man. And listen, for us today, it doesn't matter if your hope is in, was in Trump or Obama or whoever. An idol is an idol when we trust the person over God, right? And when your conversation always seems to be tilted far more for a political ideology than the kingdom of God, that is problematic. It's not that we can't involve ourselves in politics. It's that the preponderance of our conversation, of our thoughts, is about a political ideology and not the kingdom of God. There's a problem with that for us as we call ourselves followers of Christ. I know because I've been guilty of it. Political ideology can be a form of idolatry. Chuck Colson, who was the former advisor to President Nixon and founder of Prison Fellowship, said this, many Christians, like most of the populace, believe the political structure can cure our ills. The fact is, however, that government by its very nature is limited in what it can accomplish. What it does best is perpetuate its own power and bolster its own bureaucracies, end quote. Machiavelli, the Renaissance-era philosopher, politician, and writer, greatly influenced political thought. And he had his own script for political life. He believed that to be an effective 
political leader, you needed to be ruthless and tyrannical, not empathetic and just. His book, The Prince, is basically a short manual for how not to finish last. Never to be overly devoted in acting nicely. Knowing how to borrow every single trick employed by the most dastardly, unscrupulous, and nastiest people who've ever lived. Machiavelli abhorred the story of one leader. Guess who? Jesus. Because Jesus was too nice and meek. He ended up humiliated, disregarded, and mocked. He thought that Jesus was one of the greatest losers in human history. Now, most Christians I know would never say that aloud, but I wonder whether they would opt for having more political clout and victory over being a humble servant. You know something like that? Again, they wouldn't say Jesus is a loser, but, man, I would love that political power. If only we could have so-and-so in there, our country would be fixed and blah, blah, blah. Did I hear Jesus in there at all? No. That's the problem. Question I ask myself is, can a Christian keep the soul intact and mind clear in the political arena? I think so, as long as a biblical worldview is eminent, is supreme in our life and thought. But unfortunately, it's not always the case that once you're enmeshed in the political world, it just seems to suck the life right out of you. You cannot hold such views as Machiavelli, a secular view, separated from God and not reap the consequences. If we learn anything from Hosea, it's that. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. Now remember, Ephraim was one of the leading tribes of Israel used synonymously with Israel. Like a document or book that is bound and kept in storage, it's going to be found. The sin of Ephraim or Israel is just like that. The people have entered self-made consequences of their rejection of God. This is the result of decades of sowing rebellion, apostasy, idolatry, that had reaped a national character of people totally unwilling to repent. When's the last time you heard a political leader in this country calling the nation to repent? He would be laughed and mocked at. As he commented on the American culture, John Mark Comer said this, I quote, The sexual liberation revolution of the 1960s set in motion a cascade effect. The reversal of the long-standing... I should say this before I go any further. Okay? The culture is not our enemy. People in the culture are not our enemy, all right? I've said this before, but it bears repeating. We love people of a different political ideology, different lifestyle, okay? 
They are not the enemy. I read these things to you because I want you to understand the thinking behind it. I want you to make connections of the biblical worldview with the ethic, and I want us to understand how it creeps into our own thinking, and especially with our kids, right? So I'm wanting us to detect the ideology, the thinking, the script, not to make an enemy of the people. Please understand that, all right? Let me start again. The sexual liberation revolution of the 1960s set in motion a cascade effect, the reversal of the longstanding moral consensus around promiscuity, which separated sex from marriage, worked in tandem with the advent of birth control and the legalization of abortion, which separated sex from procreation, which moved on to the legalization of no-fault divorce, which turned a covenant into a contract and separated sex from intimacy and fidelity. Then to tender and hookup culture, which separated sex from romance and turned it in a way to get your needs met. From there, it's moved to the LGBTQ revolution, which separated sex from the male-female binary. The current transgender wave, which is an attempt to separate gender from biological sex. And the nation polyamory movement, an attempt to move beyond two-person relationships. Amid the revolution, the questions nobody seems to even be asking are, is this making us better people, more loving people, or even happier people? Are we thriving in a way we weren't prior to our liberation? End quote. I've made this point before as we've gone through Hosea, that the idol of our culture is this twisted idea of freedom that I am free to do whatever I want, whenever I want, and I don't want any stricture, including religious laws, telling me what to do. That's an idol for most Americans, or I should say a lot of Americans. After Woody Allen was questioned by an interviewer if he had any regrets about having a sexual relationship with his stepdaughter, his response was, I quote, the heart wants what it wants. The flesh gave Woody Allen a script and he bit. Verse 13. The pangs of childbirth come from him, come for him, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. The idol-loving nation was compared to a newborn which is not yet out of the mother's womb, despite her strenuous effort in labor. Such a delay results in the death of mother and child. The point is the tribe of Ephraim or Israel, including the leaders of Samaria, caused the death of the whole nation, ruined the nation. Jeremiah referred to this self-inflicted pain this way. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Here's a question to ponder. Can a nation expect longevity and blessing when it continually rejects God, spurns God's law, and omits God from the discussion? We are in the middle of the answer to that question here in America. 
Now, we may agree that God can judge a nation. But I think a lot of Christians think since, you know, there were a lot of Christians that were in the majority in the early part of our history, God cannot judge America with its rich history. And they would be wrong. We live in a moment in history that sociologist Peter Reef calls anti-culture. Very powerful cultural currents are actively working to take order and make chaos. To undo the order that has been passed down through previous generations. Doesn't mean the past generations were perfect. Doesn't mean that everything was good. But there was an order, a moral order that was understood. It was a, it was a consensus. Not any longer. Part of the chaos is rejecting the dominant worldview of the past that included God. But not only is the present cultural ideology rejecting God, but rejecting the reality of nature, of biology, and of living in a moral universe. And as the philosopher H.H. H. Farmer put it, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. An initial reading may sound like God is confused. I'll admit, it, it's like, does, is God speaking out of both sides of his mouth? But no, he is not. He is simply saying both merciful and just. He will execute his justice, but will always provide a way for the repentant. In the case of the nation of Israel, God promises life beyond the death of the coming Assyrian captivity. God has plans for his people even in the midst of that. There will be a new beginning beyond their deserved death and grave. And God's grace is ultimately pictured in the person and work of Christ. Instead of the whole situation resulting in utter doom forever for God's people, there is hope inserted here. Christ is the ultimate victor generations later. The Apostle Paul alluded to this in 1 Corinthians 15 by tying the Hosea passage with the fulfillment of Messiah Jesus' victory and his victory over death. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15, 55. And in the case, case of the nation of Israel, God promises life beyond the death of the Assyrian invasion and destruction. Death will not be the ultimate victor, though Israel here will face judgment. Israel has had multiple chances, multiple prophets and warnings, and they have rejected the repeated appeals for repentance. And nothing Israel can do will fade the certainty of the judgment nor reduce its severity in the coming 
invasion of Assyria. And judgment upon Israel during this time will overshadow compassion for that generation. Thus the end of verse 14, compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God, and shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. Verse 15 says, they flourish among their brothers. There were riches, there were resources that God had blessed the land with, but this would come to an end. Israel ceased giving thanks to God. In fact, they thanked false idols for their blessing. And God had had enough of these generations of rebellion. The east wind was a desert wind, dry and hot. Natural resources would be depleted. The water supply, springs, brooks, wells would dry up along with the sources of food. All that they had in storage or in, in the treasury that stored the food would be used up. God was able to bless them previously, but he was also able to take these blessings away. We see this historically with Shalmaneser began the siege of Samaria in 723 BC. 2 Kings 7, 6 says, in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. Now, why does he talk about Samaria? Well, Terza was the first capital of the northern kingdom, but it later became Samaria. This is why Israel is referred to as Samaria. Israel is found guilty. You know, many cannot fathom a God who delivers judgment because they cannot acknowledge the guilt of their sin. See, it's one of the things that a particular segment of religious life never talks about. Sin, blood of Christ, judgment. And they normally just reject the Old Testament and, in essence, reject the gospel and still call themselves Christian. They are what the Bible calls false teachers. It's not the Bible. It's not the gospel. It's a man-made religion. Forgiveness and grace and redemption are unnecessary to the modern man. And yet it still props up its secular viewpoint as a great search for meaning. And this is in religious circles as well. It's like running into a building that's on fire with smoke and then denying that there's a fire. Well, you know, your denial does not change reality. And people's denial of God being one who judges is not going to change the lay of the land. 
Mark Sayers, the cultural commentator and pastor, said this, secularism is the attempt to create a system for human flourishing in which the presence of God is absent. Our contemporary culture of progressive secularism is a failing temple, which like the temples of the ancient world, exhausted and dismayed, created anxious and confused followers, end quote. See, Israel would have to face the logical end of a view that practically rejects God. Again, a religious people. So just because you might call yourself Christian doesn't mean that you are subjecting yourself to a biblical script or honoring Christ. You can be living with a secular script. I want you to be able to recognize that. I am not one that is, you know, free and clear. I see these things in my own life. And that's why the rhythms of life with being a part of a body of Christ and prayer and in the scripture and discipleship are a part of recognizing these things of how we become kind of enmeshed in the culture and have a way of thinking that is not biblical. Israel would have to face the logical end of practically rejecting God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. The 10 tribes of the kingdom are rebels against God and they have to suffer the consequences. And these consequences are obviously horrible. It's hard to even read. But the brutal Assyrians were known for this. This was not new in this passage. Not even women and children would be spared with this conquering Assyrian army. When Israel defeated, or Assyria defeated nations, it sometimes included ripping open the women, pregnant women. It was a practice attributed to the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser about 1100 BC. It was in a hymn praising his conquests. It's also referred to in passing in a Neo-Babylonian lament. So you see, the Assyrian conquest would not just defeat the enemy, it would often humiliate them. And the centerpiece of Israel's rebellion that brought about this Assyrian captivity was its dismissiveness of God and worship of idols. Our culture denies God by idolizing freedom. The consequences? Well, instead of joy or peace, we become a hurried society, always searching, always running, never finding meaning. Soul rest escapes our culture. Secularism deceives its followers and it leaves them empty. You cannot reject God at no expense. You cannot repel the rhythms of a biblical faith community and expect spiritual health. You know, more enlightened Christians are rejecting clear biblical ethics and opting for a progressive model that is really a secular one. And again, I use the term secular 
in the sense of rejecting God and a biblical worldview. The ethics are what happens down the road from this secular worldview or this script that opts into a cultural mindset that idolizes freedom and convenience. This is typified by one of the greatest thinkers of our time, Elsa from the movie Frozen. In the song, Let It Go, that says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. See what the world calls freedom can easily become bondage. Because now we're free to do whatever we want. We become in bondage then to fleshly, worldly passions. That should not be a surprise to us. Let us consider some of the consequences. I could give several illustrations on this, but we only have so much time. The secular idol of freedom believes that humans convey identity and personhood upon themselves, or that courts convey that upon humans. This is no longer inherent in every human being given to them by God because the secular view rejects God. And so personhood and humanity can now only be conveyed by other human beings. The result? Since the 1980s, when screening for Down syndrome became more common for pregnant women, most babies with Down syndrome have just been quietly aborted outside the public eye. Most estimates say that in America, 67% of babies with a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome. France, 77%. Scandinavian countries like Denmark, around 98%. And due to widespread testing and abortion, Iceland is close to 100%. One Icelandic doctor recently said, we have basically eradicated Down syndrome from our society. I guess he expected applause. Killing babies with Down syndrome is now called genetic counseling. Pete Singer, the bioethics professor at Princeton, says parents should wait a few days after birth before they decide to terminate the baby's life to see if disabilities are detected. Secularism offers nothing to stop that other than just my freedom to choose. So we are free to kill. And we call that freedom. Or counseling. I offer to you a different way. The way of Jesus. A biblical model that sees every single person. Again, this is just one area. I could give a lot of different areas. But just one area that every single person is made in the image of God. That every single person is valuable. By the way, regardless of politics, regardless of race, regardless of any other external factors, every single person, regardless of religion, whether they're atheist or theist, they are important to God. So they should be important to us. Hmm. 
So what I want to offer is a different way to look at this. We have an illustration of this biblical worldview, what God's grace looks like in our own church. Richard and Ramonda Duga had a natural-born, beautiful girl, Abby. And I remember walking into their hospital room just moments after they got the news that she had Down syndrome. The look on Ramonda's face I'll never forget. You can imagine, any parent can imagine the initial thoughts. But there was a switch, even in that moment, that they flipped. And they said, this is a gift given to us by God. That this baby has a value. is a complete person. And any of you who know their story know it's not been perfect, and they would never want me to set it up like that. It's not. There have been struggles. And any of you know Abby, know her story. They streamlined her in a, in a public high school. She was homecoming queen, not as a joke, but because they loved her in her class. Beautiful story. It doesn't end there. That was a natural-born child. So what do they do? They go to China. Purposely, deliberately adopting a Down syndrome baby. Who does that? Who says, give me a Down syndrome baby? That's what we want. That's exactly what they did. And now we get to see the blessing of Lily. Hard? Yes. Challenges? Absolutely. Not a model of perfection. It's simply a clear choice that God has given value to every human being. See, one perspective leads to death. I can condemn the worldview, but my heart goes out to people in this who have no hope, and I want your heart to go out to them too. But another perspective leads to value and life. One perspective denies personhood, and by the way, denies science. Another agrees that the baby is a person, is a human. So, one way we can operate and read the right script is to not buy in to this idol of freedom and choose a script that sees God for as he actually is, as he reveals himself in the pages of Scripture and in the person of Jesus and then also sees every single person as a valuable human being made in the image of God. Don't you think it would cut down a lot 
of the rhetoric that is so vile, even between Christians, about politics or whatever. You can have your opinion, but just remember, the person you're talking to is made in the image of God, is valuable, is a person. Let's pray.